Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption. Voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. The trick with the pessimist guy, that we, and I hope we walk the line, is to come up with scenarios that are just about within the realms of the feasible. Yeah, the risk, the danger, is that we're in an environment now where, you know, suddenly everything is thinkable. Like, you haven't mentioned aliens here. Did you have any deliberations about that? <laughs> uh, about aliens, no. Not, not, not this year. But, you know, you, you, you never know. 20, 20, the 2018 guide, we could, uh, we could take that one for a walk. Welcome to Bloomberg Benchmark, a show about the global economy. I'm Daniel Moss, Bloomberg's Executive Editor for Global Economics in New York. And I'm Kate Smith, an editor with Bloomberg News here in New York as well. Brexit, Trump, they came to pass this year, as unlikely as they may have sounded in December last year. But wait, wait, there could be more. Our guest and colleague John Freyer is co-author of Bloomberg's Pessimist's Guide to 2017. When he's not writing about doom and gloom, he's executive editor for International Government. John, welcome. Thanks, Anne. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. So what exactly is the Pessimist's Guide and what's its origin? How did you come up with this idea? So this is actually our third pessimist guide. We start, we started it two years ago, and essentially, you know, it's not it's, it's not a list of predictions um, of events that will happen uh, in the next year. Um, it's essentially an it's a thought exercise. We're encouraging our readers to think about all of the unimagined outcomes that could um, happen in the, in, in the following 12 months. And the origins really were after Putin went into Ukraine, that was such a, a sort of a seismic geopolitical event that it prompted us two years ago uh, to think about, okay, what are the other events around the world? What, where are the other fault lines um, in global politics where you could see, you could see ruptures uh, next year? So essentially, we're encouraging readers to look at the consensus and then look outside the consensus and think about the tail risk events um, that could upend their business models, that could upend their forecasting models. And goodness knows, over the last 12 months, we've seen enough of those. We certainly have. Um, so in, for 2017, your pessimist guide, it's full of scenarios. They range from year one of Trump, elections in Europe, uh, Saudi Arabia. How did you, so how did you come up with this year's set of not predictions, I should say? Well, so, so firstly, we, I was very keen that we had a, a good geographical range around the world. So we went through, we, you know, we, we got editors and reporters on the phone from Asia, from the Middle East, uh, from the US and Europe. And again, we encouraged them, encouraged them to think through um, the, you know, the, the range of risk possibilities and then push those risk uh, scenarios even further. So, for example, take the, Sau the Saudi Arabian model. One of the great stories um, of, of 2016 has been the rise of the Deputy Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and his, his, his vision uh, for the future of the Saudi Arabian economy. So, so that was one of the big stories of 2016. You asked yourself, okay, if you flip that on its head, 
what would that story look like? And the more we, we spoke with the reporters in Riyadh, you know, the more interesting we became, we, more interested we became in this idea of rivalries uh, within the Saudi Arabian court, which then leads you to the thought, okay, what if there was a palace coup and this, this young upstart uh, who is sort of, in a way, jumped the line of succession, what if he was pushed out of the way? What would that mean for you as an investor if you had already doubled down on this vision, on this reformist vision for Saudi Arabia? How should you think about that when you think about uh, your investments in the Middle East? So that sort of gives you a flavor of the thought processes that we went through. And to be fair, you throughout the guide, you're you're very much at pains to make sure that readers understand that these are by no means predictions. They're just kind of speculation, kind of what if yeah. scenarios. But nevertheless, I mean, I have to say, we are putting it in front of them in readers uh, to these readers. I mean, was it hard for you to walk that line? Sometimes it can be. I mean, it's interesting. Last year, but probably the most heated debate we had about this uh, in, the, in the three years we've done this now uh, was last year when we put the scenario in the 2016 guide of Donald Trump becoming president of the United States. And there were voices in our sort of inner council, there were some voices in, in Washington saying, if you do this, it could look stupid. You know, this is just a beltway. It's just a beltway obsession. It's going to be over by February. This guy doesn't have a chance. Um, and you know, there were people who thought that it would be irresponsible to put that um, to put that on 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 the list. Likewise, we, we, this year when we went through the, chi the the China scenarios, you know, I was in Hong Kong at the time, and there were there was another wave of, of protests going on. So you ask yourself the question: Okay, how how far can we push this um, in terms of uh, what scenarios we might see in China, and how? Do you risk, there is the risk that it could seem fantastical if you sort of said, okay, maybe, could you ever imagine a situation in, in which the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, would show up in the streets of Hong Kong? That sort of scenario probably, we deemed maybe just a little bit too outlandish. The trick with the pessimist guy, that we, and I hope we walk the line, is to come up with scenarios that are just about within the realms of the feasible. Yeah, the risk, the danger, is that we're in an environment now where, you know, suddenly... Everything is thinkable. Like, you haven't mentioned aliens here. Did you have any deliberations about that? <laughs> uh, about aliens? No, not, not, not this year. But, you know, you, you, you never know. 20, 20, the 2018 guide, we could, uh, we could take that one for a walk. Okay, so bringing this back down to, down to earth, just one quick question before we move on. I'm curious. I did not, I have to admit, I did not read the Pessimist Guides to 2016. No, no, like last yeah. year's and the year before. Dan is rolling his eyes at me. I think he's going to get a headache. I heard so much. <laughs> but uh, so Trump obviously did win. What other ones actually happened? That has so, to be unusual, uh, right? Well, Brexit. 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 Oh, gosh. Bre Bre so Brexit, Bre Brexit and that was in the guide. So Brexit, Trump. Now I'm nervous to read the pessimist guy. <laughs> um, we did have um, a scenario with Taiwan becoming a major issue that that you would see you would see sort of a tensions between a new U.S. president um, and and China in which Taiwan would become a pawn. So that so that was in there, um, and on the sort of the rise of Putin in the Middle East. Well, again, considering where we've been, John, some of the stuff in the pessimist's guide doesn't seem that far fetched. For instance, protests after the inauguration of Trump. Yeah, I think we can see that. He signed some executive orders reversing Obama's legacy. Yeah, I think we can see that. Presidents have increasingly, as Congress has become more recalcitrant, resorted to executive orders. With some of these, isn't that what's expected to happen? 
So that, that particular item, the Trumplandia item, the point we're trying to make there is that you see a president who is almost actively doubling down on his agenda and is making absolutely you know, no efforts whatsoever uh, to, to, bring, uh, to bring the country together. Um, and there certainly there are some fears. You know, if you look at some of the people he's appointed uh, to his sort of inner council, there are fears that he will that he will govern like that. And I think, but you do raise an interesting point with the election of Trump. It, it, that in and of itself uh, was such an outlandish event um, that it's you're, suddenly a lot of other things. The, the range of risk outcomes is much broader now than it ever has been in the past. Well, you, of course, forgot to mention Howard Stern being nominated to the vacancy right. on the Supreme Court <laughs> caused by Celia's death. So we're going to take a break and come back and talk about, I guess, what might be called white swans. Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption. Voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. So, John, I'd like to turn things around in the second segment and run a couple of white swans past you. Before you do, though, what what exactly do you mean by white swans, Dan? Well, after the year we've had, perhaps something that would appear utterly unremarkable in normal times, in effect, becomes a huge outlier, at least in terms of the psychology of the moment. And as a result, it's perceived to be overwhelmingly positive. So let's run through some white swans. And, John, please handicap them for us. <laughs> yeah. Okay, here we go. Merkel wins, Le Pen loses. Discuss. That's very possible. And it's interesting if you look at Le Pen, she, the hurdle that she has to cross, um, that, that she has to jump over, is actually much higher than the one that Donald Trump um, had, to, had to exceed. You have to remember, if you're, a Repu if, you're, if you're running on the Republican ticket, you're probably, all, no matter who you are, you're probably all, all, already guaranteed about, four, let's say, 40% of the vote. That's you know, the Republican ticket brings with you, you know, a huge swathe of the electorate. For Marine Le Pen, you know, because she's not running for one of the traditional uh, traditional parties in French politics, she's probably only guaranteed about twenty five percent of the vote. So again, the hurdle of the, the hurdle that she has to jump over is much higher. And again, looking at Germany, sort of the interesting thing with Germany is it depends what you mean by Merkel winning. She probably will be the head of the largest that, party. I'm which, actually, sorry, which means yeah, I should rephrase. I mean lead a government? She would probably end up leading a government, but the question is, will the election bloody her and batter her so much that she would essentially lose her political authority and that she would then probably step down two years later? I think in Germany, the question is the size, how big will, will her party be? Will she actually, will, she, will it be a commanding victory for her party or will it be just, will she, ju will she just scrape through? And that's the key thing to watch. But probably to answer your question, you know, that's probably the consensus. That's probably the base uh -oh. case scenario. <laughs> I know. It's the C And there we are again. Base case consensus. And, that, and that's where, after the year that we've had, I think people are tra almost traumatized now when you hear the word consensus. People are just scarred by the shock of Brexit and the shock of Trump. Um, if I had to handicap it, Merkel winning, Le Pen losing, probably, you know, 80% chance. <laughs> yeah. So that means you flip that on its head. 
20% chance of the opposite happening. Right. Okay, moving a little bit north. Brexit ends up looking a lot like the current situation. Brexit decaf, if you will. Discuss. What, so what, what, when we say the current situation, do we mean just a, we, do, we don't get a triggering of Article 50 and we just muddle through? Or what's I think the, what Dan and I were talking about yesterday is we do get the trigger of Article 50, but in reality it ends up looking a little bit like Norway, not kind of this like hard Brexit right. that we had talked about. Kind of they get isolated. And no it one, seems like May's position changes week by week. <laughs> it's very hard to keep up. And she, she, uh, uh, she probably doesn't necessarily know herself what her best, uh, you know, what what her negotiating position is going to be because she is not only she's not only in this position where she's trying to interpret the referendum result of of, of, of last June, but she's also trying to balance all these different forces uh, with her own with, within her own party. But if I had to handicap that, if you look at the worries that are coming, the concerns that are being expressed by business. By the banks, I know she says she's not going to govern for the banks, but she can't ignore it either. The idea of it, it does seem likely that we'll get some sort of soft Brexit, like at least a transitional deal uh, that will that will soften the blow of of, of Britain leaving uh, the EU. The big question, though, for her to square will be the question of freedom of movement. That was, uh, if you had to interpret any message from the referendum, is that British people were sick of what they see as unlimited immigration. So she's going to have to, that's where the deal for her to be done is. That's the really tricky part for her. How can she, how can she do, get a beneficial deal from the EU uh, while, while also doing a deal with her right wing um, on, on immigration? Um, it's really, that will be the ultimate question of, of European politics next year, beyond the Le Pen-Merkel question, is can Merkel, can, can, can May square that circle? And if you had to handicap it, will she will she manage to engineer a soft exit? Again, I would say thirty to forty percent chance of that. But again, that's like a three or four year that's a three or four year time horizon on that scenario. Okay, here's something that's only been around for about four decades. So, you know, it's a babe in the woods. The one China policy remains and trade continues to flourish between the US and China unabated. Discuss. So I think we're going to have. I think that will probably happen, I th- but I think there will be. It will be getting from here to there. There it will be a very bumpy process. I think the really interesting thing, probably one of the most interesting things things that Trump has done or said or tweeted since he's become president-elect, is testing China's commitment to, to, to the to the one China to the one China policy. It's unheard of for any American president to do this after the last uh, forty years. I think. I was in I was in Beijing about two or three weeks ago, and the consensus there was that they want to see a deal maker. They want to see Trump um, as someone that they can do business with. And the big question is: is does, is Trump, Trump just testing the Chinese? Um, is this just a negotiating strategy? And he that this idea of linking the sovereignty issue of Taiwan to trade could that actually can the unthinkable sometimes work? Or will China literally? You know, stick to its guns and and force the issue and say that no, Ch- Taiwan is much more important than any economic uh, question, um, and it is a core interest for us. And we will do to to sort of mix my 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 Bloomberg metaphors. We will do whatever it takes uh, to 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 uh, make sure the U.S. understands that we when we when we say the one China policy, we really mean it. That's sort of the key question hanging over that. But you would think that. Ultimately, the people around Trump will realize that a trade war is not in the interests of the U.S. and that you, you would have thought that this is 
rhetoric, it's a negotiating strategy. And ultimately, what you just said, Dan, that the one-China policy remains and trade continues unabated, that is the rational way. That is, the, I think, a rational outcome. Uh-oh. Okay. <laughs> uh, Kate has one. Happen. Okay, so one more. Janet Yellen, like her predecessors, gets a second term. Again, that sort of comes back to the same point, I guess. Does Trump really want to upset the apple cart? I mean, again, there's lots of things he wants to do. Uh, and is it really worth him expending political capital on that? I think well, the other, if you were Donald Trump, you might say, or the people around him might say, why, why is that uncertainty a bad thing? You know, one of the things that I think people, we've lived in a world for the last 15 to 20 years where investors and executives kind of knew the business environments that they were going to be faced with over the next, you know, 10, let's say over the next two or, two or three years. And this whole idea, looking at central banking, the idea that central banks can never upset the apple cart and that, that monetary policy needs to be predictable, that's been sort of a whole, that's been a common uh, received understanding. But the world we're living in right now, and again, this gets back to the original idea of the pessimist guide, people are going to have to learn to deal with a world that's much riskier and more uncertain than it's been at any point probably in the last 25 years. And that's, that, that comes whether you're, whether you're looking at what central bankers might do or what politicians looking at geopolitics might do. It's just a much more uncertain world now. And we're all going to have to just get used to that. Okay. Two scenarios to sign off with. Which is more likely? The Malaysian airliner is found <laughs> or inflation breaks out in the Eurozone and Japan? <laughs> okay, now, now you're getting to the multi-million dollar questions. Um, you know, I mean, it's if you look at in, you, the European and Japanese inflation, they have been dogs that haven't barked for, for a long, long time. So, you know, I think that if you look at the great mysteries of the world, I think finding the, the Malaysian jet, I think that's probably something that everyone, everyone, wants, to, everyone wants to have. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, John, we'll have to come back to this in December next year and see how we went. Thanks for joining us. Looking forward to that. Thanks, Dan. That's it for Benchmark this week. Uh, in the meantime, you can find us on iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and the newly redesigned Bloomberg app, where you can find Benchmark as well as a host of other wonderful Bloomberg podcasts. While you're doing that, please take the time to rate and review us. And you can also follow us on Twitter for all of our other musings on the global economy. You can find me at by Kate Smith. You can find my co-host Dan at his new Twitter handle, Moss underscore Eco. And you can find our guest at John Fryer. Benchmark is produced by Sarah Patterson. Alec McCabe is head of podcasts. Thanks for joining us. Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption. Voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.